Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's teaching podcast. We are in Prescott, Arizona. My name is Nate Huss and I'm one of the team members here. And uh, if this is your first time, welcome. We're so glad that you could tune in. Will you please take a moment just to grab your Bible and we are going to dive in together. Well, thanks for being here today. We've been working our way through uh, the Gospel of Mark and we're actually wrapping it up uh, next weekend. But today... We're talking about Friday during the Passion Week. And Friday during the Passion Week, most of you are familiar with, even if you're not a Christian, most of you are familiar with what takes place on Friday during uh, the last week of, of tangible ministry kind of that Jesus is doing before he goes to the cross. Friday is the day that he goes to the cross. Friday is the day that he's arrested. Friday is the day he's put through kind of a mock trial situation. Friday's the day he's nailed to a cross. Friday's the day that Jesus Christ dies for the sins of the world on that cross. Friday's the day that he's buried in a tomb. Everything has been leading toward this moment. Everything in the Old Testament has been pointing toward this moment where a sacrifice is going to be made for sin. What catches many of us off guard is that God's plan from the beginning was that he was going to sacrifice himself, that God's son, Jesus Christ, was going to come to take away the sins of the world and become the sacrifice once and for all. And so during Passover week, this week that's been commemorating God delivering them out of slavery and into the promised land, a moment where God rescued them. And they made provisions by, by sacrificing actual lamb and, and, and the, the, all that, that represented. Now here comes Jesus during Passover week. And he's going to lay his life down as the sacrificial lamb, capital S, capital L. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, become sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And what takes place on this Friday is an incredible trade where when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, here's the offer, here's the trade. We hand Jesus our sin and he hands us his righteousness. That gives me chills. We hand Jesus our sin, our shame, our guilt, our hurt, our pain, our temptation, our failures, our weaknesses, and in exchange, he hands us his righteousness, his goodness, his grace, his forgiveness, his love, his mercy, a brand new heart, a brand new identity. All that takes place because of what Jesus is doing here on the cross. That's the big picture of what we're looking at here in Mark chapter 15 today. That's the big picture. This is actually a moment in time. February of last year, I got to go to Israel for the very first time. And we got to walk in places that Jesus walked. And we actually got to visit the place that they attribute uh, the, the crucifixion of Jesus to. And uh, so rather than just ripping off um, like I've done before, like ripping off some internet photos, these are my actual kind of lame photos that we took when we were actually there in the presence of some of these very historic biblical places. 
And it's just kind of good as we, before we dive into the text today, just to be reminded that these were actual people, an actual historic moment in time that had these huge spiritual implications for all time, and yet we're not talking about a fairy tale. It's not just, this isn't just like a parable or some nice little story we can learn some lessons from. God actually stepped into time and space and then accomplished something that we could never accomplish. And it took place in an actual location. There's a governor, a Roman governor, you know, Rome's moved in and is holding sway over the Jewish people. And the Roman governor at the time was a man named Pontius Pilate. You're familiar with him if you've been around the story of of the the crucifixion before, because he steps in and he presides as judge over this silly trial that they're going to put Jesus through. And there was a moment where we got to look, take a look at this. They had actually found in the late 1960s, they found Pontius Pilate's ring with the inscription on it, the bronze signet ring with an inscription Greek deciphered as of Pilate was unearthed. So they found evidence that Pilate actually lived. It's in the Bible, but it's also in other historical accounts from Josephus and other historians from way back in the first century. But how cool is it? And then this next one is a picture of the actual ring that they found. There's an actual person actual moment in time. And then we made our way to, um, next, you can take a look. This is called Golgotha. This is the place of the skull. Now, probably some of the uh, front that you see there has eroded over time. Not sure if the wall would have been there at the time, but on the top of that hill is where they make a detailed best case guess. You know, you can't prove everything, but this for all time has been referred to as the skull place or the place of the skull or Golgotha, which is where our scripture tells us Jesus was crucified. It's difficult to get from the perspective here, but if you look there, the two kind of caves there looked like eyes, And there was another one down below that looked like a mouth. It looked like the face of a skull, and that's why it was given that name. Right next to it, right next to it, is the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus had gone off to pray the night before, knowing that the crucifixion was coming, and he sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before. There is a tomb there. And if you read through all the gospel accounts of the death of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus, um, you find out that Jesus ends up in a tomb that was relatively close to Golgotha. And so they don't know for sure, but this tomb seems like a likely candidate, and we actually got to see this tomb. If you take a look at the next one, you can see the people lined up, and that carved out of that rock there We got to go inside. The next picture is inside the tomb. Now, again, this is best case guess. It fits some of the things, but people were careful there to go, we don't know for sure. But this is what it would have looked like. It would have been very similar to this. And outside it, they actually had a rock, next one, that you can take a look at, that would have been 
like what they rolled in front of these, these tombs. And so you can kind of picture yourself there. On, on Friday, everything's been leading up to this. People have had expectations about who Jesus was going to be, and he's now blown those expectations out of the water. He's gone in to set things straight and make it really clear that God doesn't want anything to get in between you and him. He doesn't want anything between us and his presence. And so Jesus has come to take away sin and then have that ability for you and I to be in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. It's such a powerful, powerful picture. That's the big picture of what's going on on Friday. But there's also some amazing things that you can glean as we look at Mark 15 today. As much as we all know, right, that Jesus is our ultimate example. He's the one that we're following, right? He's laid his life down. He lived a life of love. He lived a life of truth. He lived a life of sacrifice. He lived a life of obedience to the Father. He's our example. We're following in his footsteps. But then it's Paul that said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So we're all looking to Jesus. But then he's given us the church, followers of Jesus, who are all imitating Jesus. And when we're doing things well, I think by God's design, if you're imitating Jesus, then I can also look to you. If you're imitating Jesus, then you're going to look and sound and behave and talk, handle your affairs, your relationships a lot like Jesus does. And so I can even imitate you as you imitate Christ. Oscar Wilde said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. I'm taking this voiceover class uh, right now um, for TV, commercial, radio, animation, voiceover stuff, and it's more just just for fun. But one of the things they do in the middle of this is they, um, they say sometimes a director will say, oh, we're just looking for Morgan Freeman here. And so then you got to do, you know, not an imitation of Morgan Freeman, but that you know in your mind, okay, you want somebody that has a really cool, buttery, soft, but kind of authoritative, wise sounding voice. Oh, okay. Or they'll go, we're, we're looking for Matthew McConaughey or whatever. And now you, you kind of get a prototype of what they're looking for, and then you try to imitate it. They gave us a script that we were now doing with another person, it was a dialogue script. And it's all online, and they put us in a different Zoom room, and I was there with this older gentleman that has this super deep, low, low voice. And, and the script that we had was really silly. It was the, for the San Diego Tourism Board, and it was a man talking to happiness. Happiness has called this man, and they're having a conversation. And so I look at the script, and the man goes, I can't do this. This looks really goofy. But what I heard him say was, you should just do it like goofy. And so I went, oh, okay. 
And so we began this dialogue, and I'm like, gosh, welcome. This is goofy. This is happiness. Thanks so much for calling. And I, I couldn't believe it was coming out of my own voice. But having seen and been familiar with Goofy, I was able to do a really poor imitation of of Goofy. You and I are really good mimics. We're really good at imitating other people. Now here's the challenge with it. When you're around a whole bunch of good people that are worth imitating, well, then you're in good shape. But when you're around a whole bunch of people who are not worth imitating, and we're in a culture today that I would venture to say is not as a whole worth imitating, we're naturally good mimics. If we don't watch it, it's easy to slip into mimicry, uh, imitating unhealthy examples. And on this particular day, I was stunned reading through this passage that is the big picture about Jesus dying on the cross and rescuing us from sin. It's also this amazing profile of a handful of people we should imitate and a handful of people God has given us for all time as examples that we should not imitate. We shouldn't be like. Take a look at Mark chapter 15, Take a look, uh, we're just going to skim through this whole chapter, but uh, a handful of verses. Take a look at chapter 4. We're going to take a look at Pilate first. Mark chapter 15, verse 4. It says, then Pilate questioned him again, Jesus. Are you not answering anything? Look how many things they're accusing you of. And then skip down to verse 10. For Pilate knew it because of the envy that the chief priests had handed him over, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. And then skip down a couple verses to verse 13 through 15. Again, the crowd shouted, crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, why? What what has he done wrong? But they shouted, crucify him all the more. Then, willing to gratify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. I want to propose to you that Pilate's our first example of someone we should not imitate. We should not follow. We've got this mock trial situation going on. Pilate is interacting with Jesus, and all these accusations are coming at Jesus, and Jesus isn't retaliating. He's not fighting back. Pilate says, why don't you speak up? Why why aren't you answering? He, He then goes to the crowds, and the crowds are whipped up, and they're chanting for Jesus to be crucified. And Pilate even asks them, what's he done wrong? I'm a judge here. I've looked at this whole situation, and I can't find anything wrong. And then, willing to gratify the crowd, finally Pilate goes, okay, if that's what you want. As a judge, I don't see anything that he's done wrong. But the crowd has swayed me. So, here you go. Jesus is going to be crucified. 
There's a lot that Pilate does here. If you're into taking notes, then here's a handful of things that he does that I think we should avoid at all costs when it comes to imitating. Don't imitate Pilate in this. First is that he, he has this compromise on his convictions. He has this compromise on his, his conscience. There is something that he sees that he goes, this man is not guilty. He, he can see it and he can assess it, and yet he makes a, a compromise. He didn't see anything wrong, and yet he veers away from his own conscience and his own convictions. Have you ever done that? If you have, that's not something to emulate. That's not something to imitate. That's not something to pass on a, a really wishy-washy set of convictions or uh, you know, numbing out your conscience. Two, he's swayed by the crowd and political pressure. How easy is it in our culture today to be swayed by the crowd and political pressure? There's tons. The, the cultural voice, the political voices are so deafening today. If we're not discerning, it's easy to just get swept up into one side or the other and kind of shift off our brain and, and acquiesce to whatever everybody else is doing, which, by the way, Anytime that you start to operate in, well, what does everybody else want me to do in order to keep my role? What's everybody else want me to do in order to keep my position? That's a really bad way to live. What's everybody else want me to do? To the exclusion of God, what, what do you want me to do? What's ethically right? What's morally right? Instead, he has a sense of what's right, and he gets swayed by political and crowd pressure. Third, he disregarded the advice of his spouse. Wives, elbow your husbands right now if you've got them here. My goodness, if you read um, very briefly in the Gospel of Matthew, in this whole account, during the mock trial situation, Pilate's wife comes to him and says, don't have anything to do with condemning this innocent, righteous man. I've had dreams about this guy. And he totally disregards that. I mean, he was intrigued enough to hear the word, but then not intrigued enough to act on it. I can tell you from personal experience, my wife, Anna, is incredibly discerning. She's incredibly smart. She's incredibly wise. And there's been hundreds of times, but I can think of two or three massive ones in our marriage relationship where we went into a particular situation or a new season of life, and she spoke the words like during an interview process or during a move, I don't have a good feeling about this. And I ignored it. Guess what? About two years later, Everything she had had her finger and her pulse on was right. God uses our husbands and our wives, our, our closest godly followers around us, to, to speak to us. And, and in this case, that was completely disregarded. Don't, don't minimize what God can do just even through some, some godly voices that are tuned into the spirit of God around you. Sometimes that's how God is trying to get our attention and guide you in your, your direction. Also, Pilate, he opted for speed and convenience 
over really anything else in this process. There's at some point where he's just in the middle of this trial and the crowd's loud and he probably just wants to, literally, he wants to, he's going to wash his hands of the whole situation and just kind of move on to the next thing. And he opts for speed and convenience over doing the right thing. All I want to say about that is just beware of shortcuts. Easy and fast doesn't always equal better. And we see that here with Pilate. And as followers of Jesus, I don't think we've got that luxury. Sometimes doing the right thing is the hard thing, and it's the slower thing. And then lastly, I think Pilate really failed to see the truth. Here's the guy who's supposed to be judging the truth of the situation. And he happens to be looking the person of truth right in the face, and he doesn't even see it. I think there's a trouble that Pilate had, because if you go read the Gospel of John and John's account of this moment, Jesus has a little more dialogue than Mark gives us here in this particular moment with Pilate. And Pilate ends the conversation asking a question of Jesus. Here's the question Pilate asked Jesus. What is truth? He's talking to Jesus. He's in a a position who's supposed to be evaluating and judging truth. And he's asking the question, what is truth anyway? You see, that, that issue of truth that we know today is trashed, right? In our culture today, truth is all relative. Truth is your truth and my truth and their truth. And everybody's got their own truth, even if they um, cross paths. We have ruled out absolute truth. And yet this conversation about what is truth has been going on since time began. Truth is a person. It's Jesus Christ. And if you really want to get to know the truth, then go do the work. Go ask the real questions. I think it's a fair question to ask what is truth. But then don't just stop at asking the question. Don't just stop at being a critic. Instead, press in and go try to find the answer. And I would propose you look to the scriptures. You look to Jesus himself. I love that about Christianity. You can rip this thing apart and find out Wrestle with it. Ask the tough questions. We'll we'll meet up. We'll hammer through it. Because truth is too big to overlook. It's too big to, to miss. Well, not only Pilate is one we shouldn't imitate, but there's another group of people that come into play here that we shouldn't imitate either. Now, they've sent Jesus off to be crucified. And the soldiers get him first. Look at verse 19. The military, the soldiers, verse 19, they kept hitting him on the head with a reed and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. Verse 20, when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe, put his clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. Soldiers are mocking him. But it's not just the soldiers. Look down at verse 29. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, ha, the one who would demolish the sanctuary and build it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. 
It's not just the passers-by. Look at verse 31. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him to one another and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. It's not just the religious leaders. Look, even those who were crucified with him Two criminals, one in particular, we find out we're taunting him. We're in an ugly, ugly age of mockery today. We're in a hideous age of mockery today. Mockery is something that's really always existed. It exists today. It existed here in this particular moment in time that we're looking at with Jesus. Mockery existed in the Old Testament Um, Often the people of God were mocked. We know Jeremiah was mocked severely. We know Nehemiah was mocked severely. We know Elisha, the prophet, was mocked severely. Uh, These teenagers made fun of him for being bald, and then he called out a curse, and a bear came out and mauled the teenagers. So watch your bald jokes, okay? (laughs) But the people of God have been mocked, and... You look around and it's easy for today for the people of God to be mocked too. Um, It's a hideous age of of mockery. There's a bit of a a definition maybe that I want to propose for mockery because it's not necessarily a word we use an awful lot, but um, mockery, would I'd put something like this. It's a general attitude or actual action of disrespect, dishonor, disdain, ridicule, scoffing, defiance. It's a display of low estimation, contempt, open hostility, or willfully ignoring of a person or set of directives. Leave that there for a second. Do you see that in our culture today, just in general? Do we have a general sort of mockery, a scoffing, a dishonor, a disdain? I mean, for you, name it, for government, for those in authority, for parents, for different races, uh, for religious beliefs, for each other. I mean, on every level, we live in an ugly age of mockery. It's ugly in this moment in Scripture. I could hardly get through it because it disgusts me, in particular because of the mockery directed at our Jesus. It's revolting. But that same spirit, that same attitude, that same action, we still see it today. And it's certainly directed at Jesus. It's certainly directed at his people. But because it's so loud in our country, I get concerned that even Christians, we would get swept up in a similar sort of mocking attitude, a general sort of disdain and dishonor. We've been disdained and dishonored, and so we're going to disdain and dishonor back. And it's just not becoming of the people of God, is it? You look at this and you go, how could they? And then there's something natural in it. Well, I'll get them back. But that's just a gross sort of, sort of distortion of it. It's not just people who don't know God that are good at mockery. Even Christians can be guilty of it. Remember the fig tree that we looked at a couple of weeks ago? The fake fruit. 
It had all the leaves that displayed fruit is here. Jesus goes up to the tree and there's no fruit. It's the outward appearance of godliness without anything going on on the inside. It looks alive, it looks godly, it looks good, but there's no substance to it. That's a mockery that we can be as Christians. We can parade around looking good, acting good, but then have real no substance there. That's a mockery of God on its own. Charles Finney was a preacher in the 1800s, and he said this, to mock God is to pretend to love and serve him when we do not, to act in a false manner, to be insincere and hypocritical in our professions, pretending to obey him, love, serve, and worship him when we do not. Mocking God grieves the Holy Spirit and sears the conscience, and thus the bands of sin become stronger and stronger. The heart becomes gradually hardened by such a process. That's true for people who don't know him, but it can be true for me and you if we get swept up in a heart that's full of scoffing and mockery, dishonor, disdain, disrespect for our God. As revolting as it is that we see Jesus going through in this moment, heading to the cross, let's not us do the same thing 2,000 years later in disrespecting and dishonoring God ourselves. I think there's probably some legitimate reasons for mockery, some of them not so legitimate. There's reasons we probably fall into a mocking, disrespectful, scoffing sort of attitude. Here's a handful of the the reasons. One is some people just legitimately aren't worth following or respecting, right? Is everybody worth following? (laughs) No. And so when that's the reality, there might be a tendency to mock what they're doing or who they are. All I'd say about that is there are some people not worth following. However, I think there's probably a better response that we could have than mock and disdain and disrespect. Does that make sense? Next, I think the reason for mockery is because everyone else is. I think a lot of us fall into it because everybody else is doing it. How much dishonor, disrespect, disdain is going on in our culture and our country today? Tons. Tons. And there's just a natural pull because everybody else is for us to develop that sort of attitude, that sort of, oh, that's stupid, that's dumb, they're lame, this is ridiculous, I'm sick of that, I don't respect you, you don't respect me, and does that do anything for the soil of the gospel? No, it's, it's disgusting. It's like we're all lemmings heading for the cliff. We're becoming the frog in the boiling water. And the temperature's rising up. Do we even recognize that we're in it before we're just scoffing and mocking like everybody else? I think another reason we might mock is to put ourselves over somebody else. It's old-fashioned pride, right? I think we like to mock or scoff because we want to appear big. And in order for me to appear big, best way to do that is make you look small. And so our culture is doing that an awful lot. The people in this particular moment, moment were doing that with Jesus. It's not appropriate for followers of Jesus. Another reason for mockery, I think, is that, honestly, we don't want to look stupid or duped or foolish. I think that's a big one. I don't want to look stupid. I don't want to look dumb. 
And sometimes when you have a conversation about following Jesus, it kind of sounds like, oh, oh my gosh. So you don't believe in science? So you don't, you don't, you checked your brain at the door a long time ago? Or, and, and so we go, oh yeah, no, I don't want to look foolish or dumb or stupid, but it's the same sort of thing. It's just kind of like saying, well, in order for me to look smart, I need to make you look stupid. And a good way to make you look stupid is to mock who you are and what you're standing for and what you say you believe. It's mockery nonetheless. The problem is God says, I've chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And the worldly wisdom is just that. It's worldly. It's not godly, and it's not headed in a good direction. You could see it with the people there missing the point. Okay, enough of the bad. We wrap this up. Look, we're not going to imitate Pilate, are we? We're not going to imitate the crowds. We're not going to imitate the religious leaders of the day. We're not going to imitate the soldiers. Who can we imitate? There's some really good ones. We can imitate a centurion who finds himself at the foot of the cross that day. We can imitate these ladies that have been following Jesus around, serving him long before they got to Jerusalem. And we can imitate a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a Jewish man, actually a member of the Sanhedrin, who had probably been involved in, but not condoning, this whole thing of Jesus being sentenced to crucifixion in the first place. Look at verse 39. Jesus is hanging there on the cross, and he's breathed his last. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, this man really was God's son. Verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph. That's not a typo. This is distinguishing. This is a whole other Mary. It's not Jesus' mom. Um, Joseph is a person, okay, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they would follow him and help him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. Look at verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God. Listen to that looking forward himself to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went into Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Verse 46, after he bought some fine linen, he took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he placed him in a tomb cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. I think there's some amazing models here for us to, to imitate, who we should imitate. This Roman centurion that's at the foot of the cross and has his heart affected by how he's seen Jesus conduct himself and the dots all connect, and then the centurion calls out, surely he's the son of God. Other than Mark at the very beginning of this gospel, this guy is the only guy to give Jesus that designation in Mark's account. Something clicked. There's these ladies that were just serving constantly, and even in this time here, there wanted to be some sort of, of comfort, and they're going to be some sort of comfort, even in the, the burial and some of the processes that they would go through to honor Jesus as he had died. And then Joseph of Arimathea from the Sanhedrin that goes in and asks Pilate for the body, and goes from there. 
Here's what I think we can model in them. Here's what I think we should imitate in them. All of these people that we see here, they had soft, open hearts. You know, our hearts get us into a lot of trouble. And if you've got kind of this mocking, scoffing sort of thing going on on the inside, guess what's going to come out of your mouth? And so like what we've been saying often is, God, create in me a clean heart. You do what you need to in my heart. Please work in my heart. Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Let Jesus do the heart work. I think these people were letting Jesus do some heart work on them. Joseph of Arimathea, at least, was looking forward to the kingdom of God. We should imitate that. Can we look forward to the kingdom of God as opposed to having our heads buried in the sand? As opposed to being completely unprepared for what might come in the future? What the Bible does speak about in the future? We wouldn't be ignorant to it. We we would be prepared and looking forward. If you're looking forward to the kingdom of God, looking forward to him coming back, my goodness, then we're in for a real treat. And I don't think you're going to be duped. And I don't think you're going to get swayed by mockery. You're going to see how every step along the way, God's still working his plan, even when stuff looks bleak. I think we can model Joseph of Arimathea's boldness and courage. We should imitate that. You know how much courage it would have taken? It would have taken a lot of courage to go in and ask for the body because why? He's a member of that Sanhedrin, this Jewish ruling class. I love that these people, women, Joseph, I think they were, they were more interested in the cause of Jesus than just the benefits of Jesus. I think that's big. Do you know there's a bunch of benefits of being in a relationship with Jesus? There's tons. But it's so easy for us to get focused on the, the gifts, the benefits, then the giver of the gifts. And let's not miss that. I think we could imitate that they had this ability to be faithful in these little things, even when it seemed futile. I mean, Jesus is dead. But Joseph of Arimathea in particular is going to go on and provide these little honoring by an actual burial in an actual tomb with fine linens. He's taken them. I love those people that despite all the odds, you don't know what's coming next. Everything looks kind of bleak, but you still show up. You're still faithful. You're still going to honor anyway. I see that in him. And I think that's fitting for Christian people. I think we should also imitate the willingness that many of these here and many others had to suffer dishonor for the sake of Jesus. Because at this moment, my goodness, Joseph of Arimathea, and we find out if you read the other Gospels, Nicodemus, old Nick at night that had met him there, talk about born-again conversation early, They're both part of this Sanhedrin. And now we find out that they're both going to go in and take part in this burial. That's going to set them out. They're going to suffer dishonor from their peers. Why? 
because the truth of who Jesus was superseded the opinion of the peers or some governing class that they happened to be a part of. It's big. It's easy to miss the big picture on who Jesus is and what he's doing. It's really easy to miss the big picture if we're constantly mocking and scoffing, if we've got that attitude going on. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says this. How happy is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path of sinners or join a group of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. Verse three. He is like a tree planted beside streams of water that bears its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither whatever he does prospers. Don't you want that for your heart? Don't you want that for your soul? I want you for your life to be like a tree planted next to waters and it just blossoming and blooming and flourishing and then what your life is producing is beneficial to other people. A humble, faithful following of Jesus is the opposite of mockery. And it's a lot more beneficial. It's a lot more winsome. And it's a lot more reflecting of who Jesus is. Let's imitate him and the people like him to that end. And so gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for just this beyond words sacrifice that you've given for us. We thank you for being so faithful to your mission that you go to the cross for us and lay your life down for us one sacrifice once and for all to make a way for us to be forgiven, to make a way for us to have a relationship with you. Oh, Lord, help us become more and more like you in the face of adversity and dishonor, that we would just stay the course and be faithful to the mission that you've called us to, to reflect you. Thank you for these faithful men and women throughout the centuries that have been persecuted, that have been beaten, that have laid down their lives for your cause. Thank you for those that are just waking up every single day despite the odds and rather than getting swept up in what the crowd is doing in a mocking, scoffing attitude in our culture. They just continue to stay faithful to you. Thank you for those examples in our own life of people like that that we can look to who are looking to you. Father, we just need your strength and your work in us to even give us the ability in the first place to have that sort of attitude and be someone who's walking in your footsteps. So we lift our voices to you now. We commune with you now in a way that just reminds us that we're completely dependent on you to produce any sort of fruit, any sort of 
attitude or heart change in our lives, Lord. We love you so much. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Ron. Such helpful uh, perspective to compare and contrast these different responses to the life and, and death. And next week, we'll talk about the resurrection of, of Jesus. On one hand, this mockery, which to some extent, I think we all participate in at different points. And then the alternative and that, that list that, that Ron presented that's, that's so good. And I hope that we can reflect on that list throughout the week, but our starting place now to do so, or maybe even the entry point to work through that list is communion. And so we respond every week as we follow Jesus in communion, remembering his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and that he just said, follow, that we are united to Christ. And as we take the bread and the cup, we remember that death could not hold him, that sin is no stronghold when it comes to King Jesus. And so we invite you to, to come to the table now to relish in the freedom that we have in Christ, uh, to partake of communion, and then we'll continue to worship uh, with one more song together. Go ahead and, and come forward now to either side uh, for the elements. so much for listening. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. And again, my name is Nate Huss. I'm one of the team members here. So glad that you were able to join us. And uh, if this is your first time listening or you've been listening for a little while and um, are still doing the online thing, I just want to encourage you, go get plugged in. Um, Restoration may not be the church for you and that's okay, but I want to encourage you, go get plugged in with the local body. Is there a church in your area that you could trust and join and, and be a part of the body of Christ. There's something that is really valuable and important about journeying together with other people who are on the journey of practicing the way of Jesus. And so um, whatever that looks like, if restoration is a, a place that you could call home and you're in Prescott, Arizona, or in one of the quad cities in the area, we would love for you to join us. If not, I just really want to encourage you, um, go get plugged into a local body. It's really, really valuable. Um, and I truly believe it is important for us on our journey of faith. And so um, again, if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to restorationaz.org. And as always, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.